You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Welcome. I'm Chris Scott, host of Meeting Pod and contributing editor at Meeting Place and Alt Meat Magazines. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the state of food safety protocols among smaller food companies and developments in a variety of regulatory circumstances. Our guest today is Martin Bugnavich, Senior Food Safety Extension Associate at the Penn State University Department of Food Science. Martin has spent nearly two decades in the food industry, providing training and technical support to all sectors of the food supply chain. His efforts focus on being a resource for companies and state regulators to evaluate issues involving food security and waste in an effort to develop solutions that meet regulatory requirements. He will outline how he develops food safety protocols and how they're generating success stories and keeping consumers safe. Thanks for spending some time with us today, Martin. Oh, absolutely, Chris. Thank you so much. Of course. Now, looking at food safety issues in the meat processing industry over the last decade or so, what have the protagonists gotten right, and what are some of the advances you've seen in terms of improved procedures or even more focused attitudes? Sure. I think one indicator that we can look at is the number of recalls and the type of recalls that we've seen really over the last decade. What we've seen overall is that there's been an overall reduction in the number of recalls for meat poultry products, which really indicates that companies are doing a, a really great job overall. I think one of the bigger challenges and successes has been related to listeria. And with the lower number of issues, you know, being seen, this really indicates that the, the, the companies are getting the fundamentals right, you know, especially in terms of sanitation, in that post-process environment, other uh, SOPs as well, you know, personal hygiene, hygienic zoning. And we've seen other improvements in other areas as well. Foreign material, of course, was, was a big issue or has been a big issue. And we've seen a really nice reduction in that as well as companies have started to put in procedures for control. Allergens is another area. Certainly, there's more work to be done with allergen and undeclared allergens and the recalls resulting from that. But again, I think overall, we've seen a nice nice job being done. Terrific. Now, food safety goes well beyond the production stages. As you've noted, are there any more trends among processors and consumers that have moved food safety standards ahead even before regulators got involved? With the smaller companies, especially those that are you know in the business there's always the challenge, especially with government online reporting portals or, that are out there where companies or people can go through and complain or issue complaints. And I think one of the things is that companies really have to be out in front of these issues. You know, companies really can't wait for, for somebody to hope that an issue is not going to become an issue. Right. Right. We have certainly seen, you know, this with, with foreign material, like foreign material complaints that go through these portals have resulted in, you know, rather large recalls. Because of this, like proactive inspection and reporting issues by employees within the company, you know, all of these things have been really important for us to reduce this. You know, an active consumer complaint system, you know, where Mm -hmm. all of these complaints are tracked and corrected is also important. Companies just can't wait for an inspector to find out you had an issue, right? You have to make sure that you're out in front of it. Yeah, that time on this issue is something I think a lot of companies don't really pay attention to. Right. Now, the meat industry currently relies on a combination of regulatory oversight, internal control procedures, and innovation and system development when it comes to food safety. What, in your opinion, is the current state of food safety in terms of implementing updated standards 
once food leaves the processor and is available to consumers? That's a really great question. We have to know our consumers, right? And we have to know how they are going to handle products and how they can mishandle products. With that, our standards have to be tight, knowing that the consumer may undercook a product or may temperature abuse a product. I think we can certainly see this with the issues that we have had with breaded chicken products and salmonella, right? These products, Mm -hmm. they have this look of being fully cooked. And because of that, there's the likelihood that consumers may not handle them or cook them correctly. And so looking at that and handling that or, or making sure that we handle it in our facilities in a way that reduces the risk from the consumer perspective has been really, you know, really key. And the regulators are getting on top of that, too, with that recent That's FSIS ruling on adulterant among breaded chicken products. Correct. Okay, let's take a look at the supply chain and how various adjustments and fluctuations in recent years have affected some of the companies that you've worked with recently. What kinds of solutions have these operators come up with to meet those challenges for food safety? Yeah, you know, supply chain challenges really continue to exist in this post-COVID environment. You know, with this, there's been really that need to build flexibility into how companies operate while still maintaining, you know, good control. This may mean, you know, changing a supplier or changing the relationship with a supplier to ensure adequate supply of that. And part of this could be an understanding of the supplier's upstream process. Does their upstream process have any kind of chinks in it that could result in an issue? And especially these for those suppliers that have items that we consider mission critical, you know, for our operation. You know, in some cases, this is me, you know, getting to know the supplier some better. What kind of issues do they have? Do they have any kind of staffing issues that may impact them right. down the road? You know, then, of course, then there's always that, you know, working with secondary suppliers and establishing those and doing the due diligence more current rather than waiting. So, you know, we have that backup supply set up in the need that we need to get it. So it's very important to keep communication between the people that are providing supply chain services as well as the processors themselves. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Now you've been quoted in a story about Thanksgiving being the most dangerous holiday when it comes to food safety. Can you outline how pervasive the potential for holiday diners to become sick from bacteria or other pathogens? You know, this is an issue related more to consumers and the of fact course, that yes. they're handling more food that they can only handle right. at, at any time. And, you know, even, you know, I think you, you may know, and I know from my own experience, how hectic things can be around the holidays. You know, a lot of people in the yep. kitchen, that pressure of getting things done on time, you know, and people wanting to take shortcuts, especially when it comes to food safety procedures. And so we speak about this quite often. I think a lot of it is, you know, getting consumers the need to plan and pre-prepare, and then to follow food safety practices. You know, I don't know if we see these numbers pop up, you know, in terms of recalls or anything like that. It, you know, but again, a lot of this is what we call incidental type of contamination that occurs or can occur in these types of settings. And, and so the holidays, to me, I always represent that time where, you know, that extra level of precaution is needed. Absolutely. On both sides. Right. Now, if you were to advise the industry on what might be the next important step for improving food safety practices, what would you suggest for, say, over the next five years? That's another great question. And thinking about this, I think, and maybe just because it's recently on my mind, is the talk about companies being needing to become audit ready. You know, the third-party inspections are really a great way to have your food safety system 
managed or measured, I should say. You know, first, if a company's not doing that, it's certainly, I think it's worthwhile to do that, to have that, your system challenged. Secondly, the, the thing that we need to do is ensure that these systems are working to the point that companies don't have to or don't need to prepare for the audit. Improving yields and consistency is possible in a Fusion Tech smokehouse. Our patented airflow technology allows you to set the location and duration of the oven breakpoint, meaning you can reduce the amount of overcooked and undercooked product on each rack. The result? Our customers have seen up to a 10% increase in yields, up to a 28% increase in consistency, and up to a 35% decrease in cook time over their previous oven. Improve yields and consistency across your product. Learn more and request a quote at https.ftiinc.org slash ovens. Now back to the podcast. And I hear this all the time where they're, oh my gosh, we have an audit coming up next week and we have to get prepared. And, you know, to me, that always indicates that, you know, so maybe some of these procedures they have aren't necessarily, you know, where they need to be. And right. I think becoming audit ready, like all the time, it means that those systems are in place and that they are operating. And it's really the reason for the audit, right? To make sure that all of those things are are in place. And so not a sexy answer, but I think it's one of the things that I, I still see a lot of. And I think it's something that I think we need to do is to get to that point where, you know, if an audit comes in, it's not like it's, you know, we have to jump through a lot of hoops. Everything's in place and the systems are working the way they need to. On a consistent basis. Correct. That sounds to me a little bit like uh, you have a car and you don't worry about the oil and suddenly it's time to get an oil change because your engine is locked up. Right. There should yeah. be a consistent yeah. level throughout the use of the car. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, you've spent the last 15 years focus on the quality system development, regulatory affairs, and operations process analysis with a variety of food industry companies. What would you describe as some of the more significant adjustments in hazard analysis critical control point, also known as HACCP? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you one of the things I just like to answer this question with is one of the things that we've seen, you know, and this is the really the FDA approach to HACCP, mm-hmm. which is the preventive controls approach. And what the preventive controls approach has done is it's basically elevated certain aspects of HACCP, certain aspects of your food safety system to the point where it becomes a HACCP or like a a critical control point. So these primary components are the the sanitation preventive controls, right? Preventing the the potential for contamination in that post-process environment. Mm -hmm. Allergen preventive controls, ensuring that allergens that are in the product are on the label, right? So there's no undeclared allergens. And the supply chain preventive controls, ensuring that suppliers, that we're buying ingredients that where the supplier has to control that hazard, they're actually, we're verifying that they're actually doing it. And I know while this is more of of the FDA approach, one of the things that we've seen is, is enacting some of these preventive controls in these areas really goes a long way in preventing some of the issues. And we already talked a little bit about, you know, the amount of allergen-related recalls that are that currently happened. I think taking a preventive controls approach to allergen control, I think can go a long way in reducing the amount of allergen-related recalls that we're seeing. And that can go for both small and large processes. Yeah, absolutely. Gotcha. Okay, can you describe for us the concept of dual jurisdiction facilities and how those systems help maintain food safety standards? 
Yeah. So when we talk about Jules jurisdiction, and we certainly get a lot of questions related to this because these are companies that operate or manufacture products that fall under both FDA regulation, and they also manufacture products that fall under USDA regulation. Mm-hmm. And of course, while USDA has a more continuous presence in the facility, you know, FDA does not. But that doesn't mean that at some point you're <laughs> going to get an FDA inspection. So, you know, the difficulty, I think, is understanding the nuances between both of those regulations and making sure that, you know, facilities are making sure that the facility can handle or meet both of those requirements for both the USDA aspect as well as for the FDA aspect. And again, I think there's certain areas where, you know, you could utilize both of those systems in either of the items. You know, we just talked a little bit about preventive controls and uh, how a company can utilize that. Well, certainly in a dual jurisdiction plant, there's nothing that stops somebody from looking at and doing a deeper dive in on their supply chain program. Are there individuals at these companies that are focused on keeping up with both sides of a dual oh, jurisdiction yeah, ab- absolutely, process? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think it's not like these systems are completely alien to each other. The similarities, there's more similarities than there's differences. And that's why I said that sometimes it's just in the nuances of what they look for, what they require or what they don't require. And most people that, you know, we have a lot of folks that will come to our trainings. They'll come to both the FDA and, and USDA trainings that we, we have here at Penn State. And, you know, they see like, wow, these are pretty similar. In some cases, it's just really just making sure the paperwork is complete so that it addresses the items that that regulatory agency would be looking at. And as you noted before, staying on top of it consistently so that there are no surprises when it's time for inspections, et cetera. Correct. Now, earlier this year, you were appointed to represent Penn State Extension on the advisory committee of the new Pennsylvania Food Policy Council. What are some of the goals of the council when it comes to helping to address food insecurity and food safety? Yeah, well, unfortunately, we've not had a chance to meet yet, which is coming up very soon. However, I think we can anticipate what some of the important issues are going to be, right? Certainly, one of those is going to be sustainability. Sure. Things like plastic packaging. And how do we start to get away from plastic packaging? Other things like waste reduction in food facilities so that we're not wasting Mm -hmm. food. And the other item that you mentioned, of course, is food insecurity, which, you know, there's been a lot of attention to that. You know, food, food today is expensive and it's, it's certainly making it a lot less accessible to many people. And as an industry, we have to ask, how do we help this? How do we, you know, how do we help to support, you know, these systems that are out there? And one of the things that we've done is we found as we started to dig into this is the fact that the people that do this are wonderful. People that get involved with food donations, they're doing some tremendous work, really some. But the thing is that we're finding is that there's a lot of differences of how, you know, people handle product, how it's moved into the system, you know, what what's acceptable or what's not acceptable. And I think one of the goals I think we have to look at going forward is creating uniform procedures and understanding what the risk is, you know, basically similar to a HACCP-based system, right. right? What are the hazards and how do we control those hazards? But I think in the end, I think we can have a much stronger, you know, food donation system that is able to reach and get food to those who need it. And of course, on the receiving end, making sure that that food remains safe for consumption. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly another point of it. I think without a doubt is, you know, a lot of times these, these products come in and, you know, it's making sure that we can communicate to the consumers, you know, how they have to go through it and handle that. Right. You know, and some of these items, sometimes they're not necessarily 
package, like a consumer package. You know, like sometimes the donation will come in and it'll be a, like a food service item. And so we have to do is make sure that, you know, we have proper labeling, proper handling instructions for those people. Exactly. Let's take one last look at some of the food safety issues consumers face during the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of the growth of food delivery when it comes to staying healthy. With food delivery still a factor in the post-COVID world, what should consumers and food manufacturers remain vigilant about in terms of maintaining food safety? Yeah, I guess it's another great question. Certainly, we've, we've seen a proliferation of food delivery system operations coming into during this time that are still in place. And I think, you know, basically we're tasked with understanding what the risks are entailed within each of these various means and then ensuring the appropriate types of controls both by the shipper as well as by the receiver. You know, for example, I think with mail order food, this is not only on the shipper, right? The shipper has to make sure they can get the product to the consumer, but it's also on that consumer, right? And so how does the consumer, you know, receive that? How do they handle it if something goes wrong, right? Do they have a way right. to, to handle that? I think another important component of this from the consumer perspective is choosing a legitimate operation. You know, like, you go to a restaurant, you know where the restaurant's at, right? Or you, yes. you go to the supermarket, you buy, right? But with some of these things, it, you don't necessarily have that ability to see because you're either maybe ordering it online or you're ordering it over the phone. Right. And, you know, you're hoping you got the right <laughs> right, the right place, right? And so it's really incumbent on the consumer then is to make sure that indeed they're, you know, they're, they're ordering from a legitimate operation. And there is like if they have an issue that they have someplace they can go to or they can get back to that person to handle that issue. Terrific. Well, thanks for sharing your insights with our Meeting Pod listeners today, Martin. We really appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in this week. That's a wrap. Until next time. Remember to tune in on Mondays to get the inside track on the people and the processes that drive the protein industry. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Meeting Place and Alt Meat magazines on social media, and be sure to visit our websites at meetingplace.com and altmeat.net.